You're listening to From Shadow to Substance, Studies from the Book of Hebrews, presented at Hope Kesson Baptist Church in the spring of 2008 by Pastors Rick Bino and John Boulay. Today's sermon, entitled, Therefore Make Every Effort to Enter This Rest, begins with a reading from Psalm 95. And now, Pastor Rick. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your test fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The call to worship we read just a few minutes ago from Psalm 95 serves as the launching pad for the writer of Hebrews this week and his teaching for us. And you might be familiar with that Psalm 95 passage. We sing it in multiple praise songs we do. Come, let us worship. Let us sing for joy. Let us worship and bow down. But it's interesting to me that right where we tend to stop in that psalm was the place that the Hebrew synagogue worship would start. We tend to stop in the first half of verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. But the Hebrew synagogue would start their message with the next verse. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think that's a fitting way for us to begin our time in God's word today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We'll be reading from Hebrews 3, verse 7 through 4, 11. So I know there's lots of Bibles around for you to look at, so I encourage you to grab one. Turn with me to Hebrews 3. I'm going to start reading verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 11 of chapter 4. And I want you to listen as we read and as you follow along, and look for some of the common themes that you see cropping up in the passage, because the argument that the writer here uses is a little on the complex side, it's a little... Um, difficult in some places to follow. <clears throat> but I think if you observe some of the trends, uh, if you observe some of the repeated ideas, that'll help you sort of get a foothold in what the writer was trying to, is trying to communicate to us. So follow along with me. This is Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7 and going to verse 11 of chapter 4. <clears throat> Excuse me. So as the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, 
as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As it has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it, For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed entered that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world, For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Think back for a second to that random job you had one time in your life. You've all, I think, almost everyone I've talked to seems to have in their resume of their lives some really unusual random job. It has nothing to do with your career It wasn't something you had in your career path, but it was in your high school or college. You were just trying to make ends meet, trying to make a few bucks, and you had this unusual job. My wife, for example, she was a seamstress for the costumes department at the U of D Theater. Just sort of a unique opportunity she had and a unique job. Because I want to tell you about mine. I was a candy truck driver. (laughs) 
I am the candy man. <laughs> now, it wasn't local stuff either. I would drive a truckload of candy to Charleston, South Carolina, deliver the candy to a bunch of places, and then drive the box truck back from Charleston, South Carolina. Now, you may be wondering, why is it that you were driving candy all the way to South Carolina? Couldn't they buy candy closer than from up here? That's a great question. It was a question I didn't ask until I got a phone call from somebody at the office that says, Rick, if you haven't cashed your last paycheck, you need to do so. The FBI is here. <laughs> and our boss just got arrested for using this company as a front for money laundering. <laughs> that was easily the most unique dismissal I've ever had from an employment ever. But you know what I did that afternoon, don't you? I went and cashed that check. I didn't drive to South Carolina for nothing. Well, let me tell you my schedule on these days. It was back, this wasn't a college job, by the way, for those of you who think it was way back then. It was uh, about 10 years ago. My, I was already married. My daughter was already born. I was a part-time teacher, a part-time youth minister, and uh, a part-time seminary student. So I didn't, obviously didn't have enough to do. So I decided that driving to, to South Carolina twice a month, or once a month, would be great. So I would get up at 8.30 on Monday morning. I would work teaching class all day till 4.30. Then I'd get in my car, and I'd drive to Pennsylvania, and I'd pick up the box truck. And then I'd head to I-95, and I'd go down I-95, trying to get to Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, by the evening, by the, that night. Get up the next morning, drive down to Charleston, start delivering, doing all my deliveries, as many as I could get done on Tuesday, wake up the next day on Wednesday, start my way back up the coast, trying to, to drop off and deliver at some places in uh, Myrtle Beach and those kind of things, get all the way back up here, drop off the truck, and get back to church by Wednesday night at 6.45 so I could do youth group. It was a tiring few days. But something crazy happens when you're sort of on a driving schedule like this, and maybe it's a male thing, I don't know. But it was very difficult for me to rest when I needed to. I admit that I probably, I, by the grace of God, never hurt myself for anyone else, but I had that attitude sometimes of just one more exit. I'm just going to go one more exit. Uh, there's a hotel right here, but there's probably one. I'm going to go to the next hotel. It was very tiring. The truck had no cassette player, no CD player. Satellite radio, of course, wasn't even a thing yet. So it was me and local radio. And the only thing that, the only thing that kept me occupied was Monday night football. That was good. It was on Monday night. And then counting the south of the border billboards on the way to the tourist trap. That, that kept me awake, too. But other than that, I had nothing. But what I found is that even when I did stop, and even when I did sleep, that I wasn't really resting because I was already thinking about the next day, about how early I had to get up, about how many more miles I had to do, whether I was going to get it all done in time, how, how long was it going to take me to start to make the turn and come back up. I found out that when it came to candy truck driving, I had a very poor understanding of rest. And now that I'm older and more reflective and more thoughtful, I find that in my life, I have a very poor understanding of rest. And I submit that you probably do too. And that's because most of us don't have what I would consider a theology of rest. And what this writer in Hebrew does, Hebrews does for us is it creates for us 
a theology of rest. Rest is one of the major themes that should have cropped up in your mind from this reading. And from that theme, there'll be some other major themes stemming from it. But the question I want to address for all of us today as a, as a, as a community is, why don't we experience greater rest in our lives? Why don't we experience more rest? Why do we keep driving the candy truck of our lives another mile and another mile? Isn't that a great, say that connection? Candy truck of your lives? All right, work with me. Why do we keep driving the candy truck of our lives another mile and another mile? One more hotel, one more mile. I could push it one more, a little bit more, when all we really ought to be doing is taking a rest. What is the problem? Clearly, I think we, we probably understand that resting is more than just stopping activity, though that's a part of rest. But I think we've all been in those situations where our bodies are at rest, but our minds are not. That worry and anxiety is still grip, gripping us, even if the environment is tranquil. How many of us have said, I was on vacation, but I just couldn't relax? So I think we have to understand, first of all, that rest goes beyond just not being active, and it goes just beyond the, the proverbial nap, although I affirm both of those things. And part of it is that we fail to understand that rest is a deep theological concept vital to our soul's health. One of the reasons we don't experience more rest is because we do limit it too easily to am I taking a nap, or do I take a day off, or do I have a vacation? But that misses some of the rich theology that lies behind this idea of rest. And in this passage, the writer attempts to help us understand the theology and the richness of rest. And he does it by helping us see three archetypes or three patterns of rest throughout theological history. The first was the promised land of Israel, the past. He says, in the past, there was this nation of Israel, and this is at the first half of the passage, who came out of Egypt, and they were told they were going to go to the promised land. And that promised land was their land of rest. They looked to enter into the promised land, a homeland of their own. So the first image of rest in the passage is this past image of a literal land of rest, a literal place that the nation of Israel, that God's people went to, their land of milk and honey, their land of peace, their land where they could experience rest. Well, then later in the passage, in verse 4 of chapter 4, and in verse 10 of chapter 4, the writer refers to a present rest, the Sabbath rest, a rest that we can experience as followers of Christ. Now, interestingly, even though it's a present rest, it's a rest that was established back at the creation when God rested on the seventh day. But just as God rested, we too are able to enter a kind of rest as followers of Jesus. Remember Jesus' words, Come to me, all you, are all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So there's a way that we can taste rest even today because of God's work through Christ in our lives. So there's a past rest, there's a present rest, but then the passage ends in verses 7 through 10 with a future rest, a rest that we look forward to, a heavenly rest.
a past rest, a present rest, a future rest. There's a lot more to this idea of rest than the nap that you're going to take this afternoon. Although, once again, I affirm the nap. I love the nap. That's a good step in the right direction. What I want you to see is this, is that rest is inherently woven, or the desire for rest, the need for rest, is inherently woven into our existence. And we are unable to live out all God created us to be if we do not rest. We sell ourselves short of what God created us to be when we do not rest. Because it's built into the fabric of our creation. From the creation of the world, God established rest. It's a gift. And so when we learn to rest, we align ourselves with our created purpose. And we touch on the deeper rhythms of our souls and of our lives. We talked last week about how Jesus came to restore us as humans to the glory of our created greatness. And when Jesus, allow, when Jesus allows us to fulfill all that we're meant to be, and part of being able to fulfill all that we're meant to be is that we're able to enjoy the blessing of rest. Rest for our souls. And so when we take rest, when we are able to embrace rest, there's a sense with this past, present, and future that we are stepping into a stream that flows from the past into the future. And that this, this tradition and this pattern of rest from Israel's past flows into us. We experience a piece of that rest, an aspect of that rest, when we rest on the Sabbath, or we have Sabbath rest, soul rest. And then the water flows past us, and we look forward to the future rest. So when you take a rest now, when you have rest in your lives, you are not only looking back on the tradition of rest, but you're looking forward to a future of rest, an image of rest, of soul rest that lies ahead. A rest that's described as a place where there is no hurt or sorrow or stress or anxiety or tears or darkness. That's something to look forward to. But we, when we rest now, we get a taste of that. We get a glimpse of that. Not in full, but in part. So, if rest is so valuable, as I've tried to say that it was, why is it then that we seem to experience it so infrequently? What is the thing that prevents us from resting? Well, I found the answer in this passage to be, without exaggeration, life-changing for me and my family. If I were to say to you, what is the opposite of rest? If you were to answer immediately, most of you would say busyness, anxiety, stress, activity. Those are the opposites of rest. But those are not the answers provided by the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says, the opposite of rest is unbelief. The opposite of rest is unbelief. You are unable to rest because there's probably something about God's character that you are unable to believe. 
It comes up eight times, no less than eight times in this passage. If you missed any of the themes, you probably didn't miss the theme of, if you hear the word today, do not harden your hearts. But it comes up in other ways. 3.12, unbelieving heart. 3.13, hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 3.19, not able to believe, uh, not able to enter because of their unbelief. Some heard the message and did not combine it with faith. This is profound to me. You see, my anxiety and my stress and my overactivity and my busyness, these are the outcroppings of a restless life. But the root of some of this restlessness is unbelief. And this all plays out with the children of Israel. That's sort of the the image that he's tapping into from the very beginning. And so once again, we, we travel back in the past, and we remember that the children of Israel, they were in Egypt. They were brought out of Egypt by Moses, and they're heading to the promised land. They make a stop at Mount Sinai, they have all these miracles, they get the law, and they end up finally at the edge of the promised land, the edge of Canaan, and they're about to go in. And like all good uh, nations about to take a land, they send in spies. How many spies? Anybody remember? Twelve. Right? Twelve spies. The 12 spies go in, the 12 spies come out. Ten of the spies have a different report than two. Two of them, Caleb, Joshua, Caleb and Joshua come out and say, it's a land flowing of milk and honey. God is with us. Let's take the land. To which the other ten go, actually, not only is there land of milk and honey, But there's giants in the land, Nephilim, and their walls, huge. We would be like grasshoppers. There's no way that we can take this land. We cannot go in to this land. The story is recorded in Numbers 14, if you want to flip back to it. So 12 spies came out. Ten says, do not go in. Two say, let's do it. And so the people have to make a decision. Who are we going to follow? Are we going to go in or are we not going to go in? And in 14.1 of Numbers, Numbers 14.1, that night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Look down at verse 4. And they said to one another, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron, obviously in verse 5, they're disturbed by this. They fall on their face before God. They pray. And then in verse 9, they approach the people. And they say, do not rebel against the Lord. Here's their encouragement. Do not be afraid of the people of the land. Because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. And the whole assembly said, Amen. No. The whole assembly said, Stone them! They failed to enter the rest. 
because they did not believe. The entire nation of Israel was set out into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years until every last adult had died save two, Caleb and Joshua, the two that had come out of the land with the report that says we can believe in God and we can take the land. Simply put, what is it that they did not believe? What was their lack of belief? They did not believe that God was with them. They did not believe that God would protect them. And so they failed to enter into rest. And when I fail to believe that God is with me, not, when I fail to believe that God is with me, when I fail to believe that God is caring for me, and when I fail to believe that God loves me enough to preserve me and my family, then I fail to enter rest. And so do you. As you can imagine, these last couple weeks in my life and in our lives have been an opportunity for great unrest. And I've experienced that great unrest in my own heart, in my own soul. I found myself sitting in a scenario that should be very tranquil. Warm breezes this week, right? Nice warm breezes, sunny days. And even though my body was at rest, my soul was not. So God decided I needed to preach this next passage about rest. And he's challenged me to ask, Rick, are you not resting because you don't believe that I will care for you and your church? The church, my church. Not my church, God's church. You know what I mean. <laughs> pronouns, they're tricky. Watch the pronouns. But the question, that was the question that God kept bringing to my mind is, are you stressed out and are you anxious because you don't believe that I'll care for you? Do you not, do you not think I love the church enough? And then I began to see that the opposite of rest is unbelief. So now when I feel restlessness, I attack it by affirming what I know to be true of God. God loves us. He'll take care of us. He'll take care of your family. He'll take care of our church. Now, it might not always be in the way that you expect, of course. But even in difficult times, even in fighting against the darkness and the suffering of this world, God says, I've given you a present rest in me. Well, there's a therefore in this passage. Remember that we're looking at Hebrews based on an argument and then therefores. There's actually two therefores that say similar things. One's in verse 1 and one's in verse 11. Therefore, let us be careful that none of, you have, are, none of you be found to have fallen short of the rest. And then in verse 11, let us therefore make every effort, make every effort, every effort to enter that rest. Now, that might sound ironic to you. Make an effort to enter rest? That's, that's weird. But it only sounds weird initially. Raise your hand if you've gone on vacation of more than a day in the last year. Have you taken any weekend vacations, week-long vacations in the last year? Okay, almost all of you. Now, 
None of you, none of you went on this vacation without any effort. How many of you did it without making plans? No packing, no gas in the car, no diapers for the kids, no hotels, no away message on their email, no plan of even which way to back out the car once you hit the dri- get out of the driveway. Well, of course not. All of you made great effort to plan your rest, didn't you? And in the same way, the writer of Hebrews says, you need to make effort to enter spiritual rest. Just like you make an effort to enter a physical rest. Of course, it's not that odd either when we understand that the opposite of rest isn't effort, but the opposite of rest is, of course, unbelief. So how do we do that? How do we enter rest? Now remember, the passage talks about these different levels of rest or different types of rest. And so the first step in overcoming the unbelief that leads to restlessness is to respond with faith. In 4.2 of Hebrews, the writer says that some people have heard the message, they've heard the gospel preached, but they did not respond with faith, and therefore they will not enter into the rest. If you are not a Christian, if you have not given yourself over to Christ, then your soul simply cannot rest. Because that's the promise Christ offers when we come to him. Come to me and I will give you rest. And so the first step for all of us in achieving this soul rest is that we engage in faith in Christ. We recognize our sinfulness. We recognize that we cannot gain this rest on our own, that it is indeed a gift from God. And we enter into his rest. Our souls are broken. Our souls are broken, and they have to be fixed from the outside. Let's get this. They have to be fixed from the outside. We cannot fix ourselves in spite of what other religions and philosophies will try to tell you. You see, we tend to to walk around and say, well, the problem's out there. The problem's out there, so I'm just going to look inside myself. When in reality, the problem's inside yourself and you need to look out there and find Christ. Once Christ is within you, then you look inside yourself because you're looking to Christ whose power is in you. And so the first step in overcoming restlessness is responding in faith and entering into the kingdom of God through belief in Christ. Many of you I know have already done that. And so what do we do when we feel this restlessness creeping upon us? Well, here's the steps I've found from this passage and from Scripture that I've been doing a lot this week, and I encourage you to do it yourself. First, we pray to believe. One of the greatest cries in the Bible to Jesus is one who cried out, I believe, help me in my unbelief. What a great prayer. You can always pray that prayer. God, I believe what I understand. I believe what I can. I believe what I see, but I'm weak and I'm confused and I'm selfish. So I believe, but help me in my unbelief. It's a great step in overcoming lack of rest in our souls. Pray to believe. 
Next, we can rehearse God's promises. The Bible is full of promises about God's care and faithfulness. Go over them in your minds. Look them up in Scripture. Memorize them. Make it so that these promises of God become part of your very fiber of your life. We rehearse God's promises. And that way, when those moments of restlessness come, because they could come at any time, can't they? You can be driving to work and all of a sudden you feel soul, your soul is not at rest. And how valuable would it be to have in your mind Scripture. Cast all your anxieties on Christ, for He cares for you. Yeah, that's a good one right now. I need that one right now. Lastly, repent of our sins. In verses 12 and 13, the writer adds another element or aspect of unbelief. He says, unbelieving heart deceived by sin. Your lack of soul rest could very well be because there's sin in your life that you need to work out. There's some bitterness, there's some anger, there's some, there's some uh, complaining spirit. There's some sinful action that you're engaged in. Sin's going to disturb your rest, right? As a follower of God, that's what sin does. It disturbs our rest. And so we follow the model of Psalms and other parts of Scripture. We repent of the sins we know about. And then we ask God to reveal to us the sins we don't know about because remember it says the unbelieving heart deceived by sin. So there's sin in your, in your life you don't even know about. And so we say, God, reveal to me my sin so that I can confess it. So whenever you feel disturbance of rest, do not overlook the possibility that there's some sin that needs to be dealt with. Throughout the passage, there's one other theme that shows up. And that's the idea of today. You know, the word today is a word of hope. You've got today. You've got right now. I don't know what you're going to have this afternoon. I don't know what you're going to have tomorrow. But you have today. You have now. And so when the writer says, today, open your hearts. Today, enter the rest. Today, believe. We don't go, oh yeah, I'm going to work on that later. No, not later. It doesn't say later. It says today. Today. 